Good morning, everybody. Today, we gather to celebrate the greatest story ever told, the greatest story, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The first followers of Jesus had a word to describe this story. They called it gospel, and it was taken from a Greek term, euangelion. It just means good news. So when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the good news of the story of Jesus, specifically his life, death, and resurrection. Now, in the Bible, there are four gospel accounts. In other words, there's like four authorized biographies of the life of Jesus. So think about having a life and then authorizing four people to write biographies about your life. Each one is authorized, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they each sort of highlight and dig into different components. So it's like having a biographer focus on different components of your life. So they each have a unique story to tell. Maybe the most unique of these four gospels, these four biographies of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the Gospel of John. Clearly different in its tone, its style, its nuance than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John wants to tell the story in a little bit different of a way. He's the last to actually write a gospel towards the latter end of his life, and he writes in a way that specifically builds tension. He writes in a way where he doesn't put his cards on the table or telegraph his past. He almost wants to tell the gospel story of Jesus as if it's like a mystery. There's a buildup and a tension, and you have to track with them. If you go too slow as you're reading, you'll get left behind, but if you move ahead of John, you won't get the clues he's leaving. Leaving behind, and the clues are there. There's these seven clues in the Gospel of John. There's seven miracles, actually, but we know they're clues because he calls these seven miracles by a different word. See, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three biographies of Jesus, talk about Jesus' miracles as dunamis in Greek, powerful acts, a powerful, mighty work, but John records specifically seven miracles in a specific order, and he calls these miracles by the term samion, where we get our word sign from. And sign is something that is not the thing mentioned, it's something that points to something beyond itself. So your left blinker isn't left itself, it's a sign, it's a symbol, it has symbolic significance, and it's pointing to something outside of itself. In the Gospel of John, there are seven miracles, seven clues, and he calls them seven signs. He wants you, as the reader of his biography, to track with him as he progresses through these seven signs, and the mystery of who Jesus is and what he's about gets revealed along the way. The first of the seven miracles is Jesus changing water to wine. Many people's favorite miracle. Many people's favorite miracle of them all. What's significant about miracle number one is not just that he changes water to wine, but it's the way in which he does it. He does it at a wedding, and a Jewish wedding at that time would actually last about seven days. So if you were to run out of wine early, say like on day three, that's a major no-no. People have traveled Miles, a significant journey in the ancient world is harsh. They've, they've gone there to celebrate this wedding and they're there for seven days and if you run out of wine, it's a big, big deal, big no-no. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, goes up to him and is sort of like, what are you gonna do, Jesus? Like, 
make something happen. And so Jesus changes water to wine, but how he does it is the real interesting thing because Jesus doesn't just take any old water to change it to wine. He gets these, these giant jugs of water, and they're roughly 20 to 30 gallons apiece, but the water in these giant jars is reserved for Jewish ritual, ritual cleansing, ceremonial washing. So before you go to temple or before you go to worship, you use this specific water, this clean, dedicated water, to wash yourself externally on the outside in a way that symbolizes a a, a cleansing. Jesus uses that water. He uses the water that's used to wash your body on the outside and he changes it to wine. It's as if John, who's writing this gospel, wants us to see something. It's as if Jesus is saying, you cannot just be washed on the outside by some ritual or some ceremony. You have to be cleansed from the inside out. It's as if you have to be born again, changed from your heart and then outward. Now John lets us know this is a sign. You have to listen to the clues. He makes it specific. Right after Jesus performs this miracle, it says this, and this is like, a, if you were reading too fast and you're gonna miss it, this is where like the red light goes on and goes hint, hint. You know, some movies go like, hint, hint, are you tracking? This is it. This, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Number one of seven. The second miracle has to do with an official's son who is sick that Jesus heals. Now here's the interesting thing. The the official actually has a specific title. In most of our translations, it just says official, but the term in the original language is basilikos, and it comes from the term basilus, which is the word for king. In other words, this isn't just an official. He's a basilikos. He is a king's official. He is a royal servant, either working for King Herod or possibly even Caesar. So what's the point? You're normally under the king's authority, but when your child is sick and life itself is on the line, to whose authority do you appeal to? Who do you go to? Which king can take care of the life-death problem? And so the basilikos, the royal servant, goes to Jesus. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The very hour that Jesus spoke these words. Again, It's as if John is trying to tell you something. When life and death are in the balance, by which authority do you, whose authority do you fall under? Can Caesar save you? Can Herod save you? Where does the royal official go? And again, just so it's clear that these are signs, like John's going, in case you missed it, I'm gonna make it clear for you. This was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So this is like the movie. It's going through, and now you got, okay, sign one, sign two, and you know there's seven of them coming. Number three is a story of someone who is crippled by a pool. The pool is called Bethsaida, 
and it's a pool that has this kind of local folktale or legend built around it. It's said that every so often, God or an angel stirs up this pool in Jerusalem, and the first people to get into the water will be healed. And so this kind of folktale, this legend spreads, and you can just imagine there's, there's people around it, people who are crippled, paralyzed, sick, diseased, various infirmities, and they all wait for this supposed stirring of the water to happen by the hand of God or an angel, and then they try to jump into it to be healed. Now John tells us there's a man who's been crippled. We don't know how bad, maybe he's paralyzed, but, but he's either slow or he cannot walk at all and he's been in this condition for 38 years. With average life expectancy, there's a good chance he's been like this his entire life. He spent his entire life by this pool waiting for a miracle, waiting to try to get himself into the water. But the tension in the story is this, how does one so helpless help themselves? How does someone who has no means by which to get into the water actually get into the water? Everyone will always beat him. How can you be healed when you can't help yourself? And maybe that's the question John is trying to get us to ask. When you have no means to help yourself, all you can do is say, Jesus, heal me. Jesus comes to the crippled man. Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Miracle number four, the feeding of 5,000 people. The stories of Jesus are starting to spread throughout Israel, and you can imagine Jesus is attracting a crowd. And so at this point, there's actually a massive crowd that is following Jesus. The text says 5,000 men, but in in that day they didn't count kind of women and children, so this could be anywhere between 10 and 20,000 people, but it's called the feeding of the 5,000. And so this massive crowd has followed Jesus, and he's teaching them, and then he asks this, this, it's it's pretty much a ridiculous question to ask, but Jesus does it on purpose. So picture 10 to 20,000 people out there in the, in the kind of countryside following Jesus, and then Jesus asks one of his disciples, where are we gonna get some bread? These people are hungry. We've gotta feed them. And, and, and it's a ridiculous question because it's like, Jesus, there's no place where we can get bread that's gonna feed 20,000 people. And even if we could, we don't have the money. It would cost roughly 200 days wages. And these poor peasants just didn't have that kind of cash laying around. And so the question is sort of like, oh, we should feed these people. What do you think we should do? And if you were there, your probably response like me is, Jesus, you're crazy. We don't, we don't have the resources. It's just not gonna happen. But this boy uh, brings to Jesus five pieces of bread and two fish. And Jesus gets a hold of it, and he says a prayer. He gives thanks for it, almost as if to say, this, this, this here is enough. And we know the prayer that Jesus would have prayed. It's the same prayer that Jews then said over bread and the same prayer that religious Jews today said. It's 
Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, King of the cosmos. You bring forth bread from the earth. So he prays and gives thanks. And the gospel doesn't quite tell us how it happened, but somehow, miraculously, in the baskets of food, actual bread is materialized again and again and again to feed the people. I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's materializing. It's as if there is sort of like this new creation thing going on. Now, it's Passover time, by the way. And so if you're a Jew in Jesus' day, it's Passover time, you are thinking about what's big story? The Exodus, Moses, and you're also thinking about that entire kind of story arc. And oh, wait a second, there was a time where God provided bread from heaven for the Israelites in the wilderness. It's as if to say John is trying to get you to think, this is new Exodus, this is, this is new law, this is new Moses, this is new Passover, this is new covenant. Now, if you're tracking with the, the first four miracles, can you kind of see the, the increase in intensity? So, first miracle, water to wine. That's pretty cool. And the next one, you healed someone who was sick. And the next one, you healed someone who couldn't walk. And then the fourth miracle, you made matter materialize out of nothing. So there's an intensity, there's a buildup. Do you, do you see that buildup? So by now you're expecting the next miracle to be even greater and then the next miracle to be even greater. And that's exactly how John tells his story. Fifth miracle, Jesus walks on water. The disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee and there's a storm. And they are scared, they are terrified. Storms like this can actually kill people. And they've been rowing for hours trying to fight off this storm. And then all of a sudden, they see Jesus walking out on the water. And they're terrified. And we all would be. We'd be like, this is, this is nuts, this is crazy. There's someone out there walking on the water. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They were frightened, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, a couple of the other gospel stories also tell us some stories about Jesus on the sea. There's stories where Jesus rebukes a storm, where he calms the wind and waves. It's as if the gospel writers are trying to get you to ask the question, who is this guy? Who is this man? that even wind and wave obey? Who is this man that the very laws of nature bend before his will? Who is this man? What is he about? The next miracle, the healing of a blind man. Now some of you, if you're quick, are asking kind of, wait, wait, I thought we were, I thought we were on like, an increase in intensity. Like, I don't know about you, but like walking on water, you know, making things appear out of nowhere, that seems greater than healing a blind man. We already healed someone who couldn't walk, right? You have to look at this through, it, through the Jewish lens of the Old Testament. The healing of a blind person is one of the two greatest miracles that could occur. If you grew up in, in church and you had all kinds of like children's stories growing up, you know that nowhere in the Old Testament do people receive their sight. There's no miracle worker that's going around healing people of blindness because the miracle of restoring sight to the blind was a miracle that was reserved 
for the coming of God himself. The prophets of old said that one day in the future, the blind will receive sight. Isaiah 35 attaches that day with the actual coming of God himself. So when you see people who are blind receiving sight, in the Jewish worldview, that is a sign that God is right around the corner, the kingdom is coming, and God himself is returning to Jerusalem to vindicate his people. So from a Jewish perspective, blindness is almost next to nothing as far as miracles go. It is a miracle that only occurs when God himself appears. Which should make you, if you're reading this story, ask all kinds of crazy questions at this point. So Jesus heals a blind man. He gets some mud and rubs it in his eyes and says, go wash out in one of these local pools and you receive your sight. And he does. And immediately you can imagine, like everyone who knew the guy is going like, dude, dude, what happened? You were blind, now you see. And the guy is super faithful in the story. He's just like, I, I don't know what happened. I don't actually understand everything that happened. All I know is that Jesus made, opened my eyes. He healed me. So some of the local religious establishment, the religious elite got, got wind of it, and they were upset because there was a custom in the day that said you shouldn't work on the Sabbath, but the religious leaders took that command so far that they were sort of saying, you shouldn't even do the work of a miracle on the Sabbath. And so they bring the blind man in to question him. So the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And this kind of back and forth arguing goes on for quite some time. They actually let the blind guy go, and then they bring him back for more questioning. And this is what happens in the second round of interrogation. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner. In other words, say God healed you and that Jesus just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Give glory to God, we know that this Jesus is a sinner. Listen to this, this man's response. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now, I see. This is the sixth miracle. And at this point, the Gospel of John actually kind of has its own eyes, set of eyes, and it turns and looks at you and it asks you the question, do you see? Do you see? Do you get it? Do you get, do you get what's going on with this guy, Jesus? One miracle remains. You can probably guess it, what can be greater than receiving sight or walking on water or making bread materialize? You bring someone back from the dead. And so Jesus has these three friends, Mary, Martha, and a guy named Lazarus. Lazarus gets sick and dies, and Jesus gets the news that his friend, Lazarus, is dead. And Jesus, in chapter 11 of the book of John, says, our friend Lazarus, he's not dead, he's fallen asleep and I go to awaken him. And on his way to this town called Bethany, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live, friends of Jesus, Martha goes out to meet Jesus. She's crying, she's upset, and she essentially tells Jesus, if you were here, 
my brother Lazarus, he'd still be alive. If you were here, Jesus, he would be alive. We know you could do miracles. Whatever you ask your father, he gives you. You should have been here. And Jesus tells Martha, Lazarus will rise. Lazarus will rise. And, and Martha is a good first century Jewish woman. And she goes, look, I know he's going to rise on the, on the resurrection day but I want him alive now. She immediately thinks Jesus is talking about the, the end of things. Oh, I know I'll get to be reunited with him at the end of, at the, end of the age. That's, that's where her mind goes. But Jesus isn't saying he will rise at the end of the age. He's saying the very person to do this resurrection thing in the future, the very person who will bring about the day of the Lord, he's in your presence now. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, the do you believe this is a question asked to Martha. But do you see what John has been doing in the story? This is Jesus asking the question to Martha, but at seven miracles in, the question isn't only at Martha, it's at you. Do you believe this? Both for the readers 2,000 years ago and for you here today. Do you believe this? Do you see what's going on? Do you know who this Jesus is? Jesus goes to the tomb Lazarus has been dead for more than three days, so you could smell the decomposition at this post. This point, no one would believe that Lazarus could come back. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen straps and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. It's like the seventh sign is trying to tell you that what this Jesus is going to do is going to strike, he's going to strike a death blow to death itself unbind this man from death, loose him. Death, oh death, where is your sting? Now, there's seven miracles we've been tracking, and each one has built an intensity, and at this point in John's gospel, the questions are, are, are clear. Who is Jesus? What is he about? And you should know by now, but luckily John is a graceful teacher, so just in case you aren't working the signs and following the signs, he records Jesus himself identifying exactly who he is. He says, this is who Jesus is, straight from his mouth. This is what he's about, straight from the source. And in John 14, after the seven miracles, Jesus says these words. I am the way I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to God except through me. He is truth, he is life, and he is the way. At this point, the story is like becoming crystal clear, but if you're reading it for the first time, you're gonna be asking, well, what ultimately happens? Okay, Jesus did all these miracles, and he, he was uh, clearly revealing himself to, to be the only way to God. He's the way, the truth, and the life, but how does this story end? What are people going to do? 
I mean, this is a man who, who loved the, the outcasts, who cared for the oppressed, looked after people in society who, who had no one to care for them. He showed nothing but love and grace and truth and gave miracles to people who other people thought were unworthy of receiving a miracle. What is humanity going to do to this person? They have to crown him as king. They have to. After this man has done all these things showing who he is, what will humanity do? They have to crown him king. But what does humanity do? What does humanity do to one who speaks truth? What does humanity do to someone who speaks truth all of the time? What does humanity do to a God that doesn't give them what they want when they want it? What does humanity do to a king who rules unlike any other king? What does humanity do to a king who is humble and prays and blesses his enemies rather than defeating them? They don't crown him. They try to kill him. And the tides of popular opinion turn rapidly fast against Jesus, and he's handed over to Roman authorities. And there's this haunting conversation that takes place between Pilate, a kind of Roman governor of the region, and Jesus while he's on trial. It's haunting. Pilate says to him, so are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, John wants you to to remember what was previously said. You should hear the echoes and the whispers of what's just been recorded, not only the seven miracles, but Jesus claims about himself. What is truth? I am the truth. What is the way? I am the way. What is the life? I am the life. What is truth? Jesus is truth. He is the embodiment of truth. And if you know the story, again, your, your, your mind is racing because you know what's going to happen. And even if you've never heard this story before, if you were alive that day, you know what happens to Jewish rebels when they're found guilty by the Roman Empire. And so Pilate asks, what is truth? And you're reading this book and you're saying, that man is true. He's innocent, and then you think, you know what's coming, you've seen it before. You've seen floggings, you've seen the excruciating pain and agony. You know about the mocking, the beating, the spitting. This man is innocent. What is truth? This is truth. He cared for us like no one's ever cared. He taught about love, grace, and truth. This is truth, don't do it. Don't hand him over. And then John tells his story, he moves forward. What is truth? This is what truth looks like. What is truth embodied? Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. So what is the way? It's the way of the cross. What is the truth? It's the inscription 
on the head of the cross that says, here is the king of the Jews. And what does life look like for Jesus? Life looks like God himself suffering on a Roman cross. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, as he's hanging on the cross, people mock him. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. As he's hanging on the cross, the ruler scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself, for if he is the Christ, he is the chosen one. You come down from that cross. But here's the irony of it all. They're telling him to come down from the cross, but that would be their condemnation. Because in this very act, Jesus stays on the cross rather than condemn humanity. The cross is the ultimate sign that God himself trades place with humanity. Humanity found an innocent man guilty. We didn't want the God revealed in Jesus. We wanted a God that looked more like us. And so Jesus dies in our place. So rather than coming down from that cross and condemning humanity, God himself takes our place. Now, you know, this is an uncommon message because no one likes to think, well, humanity is guilty and we deserve punishment and all this stuff because human beings, especially in the modern era, we, we pride ourselves on, on how great we are, how, how, how much moral progress we've made and how righteous we are, but make no mistake about it. We're all cowards and cheats and liars and adulterers and drunkards. When we go to Jesus, we come to him as a crippled man, a paralytic man, a hungry crowd, a boy in need of healing. We need his mercy and his grace, and we need the truth about ourselves and about who he is, even if it hurts. Now, the story, it's, it's Easter, so it doesn't, it doesn't end just with this horrific crucifixion scene. It doesn't end with Jesus dying. It, it ends not with death, but with life. Beautiful, abundant life. And so there's this woman named Mary, and she goes to uh, the tomb of Jesus. She goes to the tomb of Jesus, and she's thinking, uh, of course he's dead, I'm just gonna go and maybe put some spices, pay my respects, whatever it is. She is not thinking Jesus is going to be alive. And John tells us on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now Mary doesn't think Jesus is alive. She cries, she weeps because she goes, they not only crucified and tortured Jesus, but now they even mock him in death. They've they, someone rolled away the stone and took his body. Because even if somehow Jesus miraculously survived a crucifixion, no one gets up and walks away after it. It may be weeks or months before you can take your first step again. So clearly, someone has stole the body. So Mary doesn't celebrate, she weeps. She cries. Could the story get any worse? And then Jesus. Does what he has done to so many of our hearts. 
He, he sneaks in behind us. when we weren't ready for it. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And Mary can't even put two and two together at this point. She thinks he's the gardener just asking a question. It's, it's, it's leave me alone, sir. Uh, did you take the body? Where have you laid him? What have you done it? And then Jesus says her name. I mean, come on, could you write a better story than this? He sneaks in and says, Mary, you ever heard someone call your name and you know immediately who it is? Mary, she knew. Jesus says to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, her, her first language, Rabboni, teacher, it's you. And so at this point, it's like every single question in the Gospel of John, it's, it's, it's a question to Mary, why are you weeping? But the question is to you this day. The question is to humanity, why are you weeping? Do you not know what has occurred? Death has been defeated. Sin is broken. Humanity forgiven. Why are you crying? Why are you weeping? It is I, Jesus. It's dark in the morning, but I am the sun that rises. I am the beginning of the new week. This is new creation, new life. All things old pass away. Behold, I make all things new. Why are you weeping is the question for all of humanity. In the midst of ache and heartache and, and sin and brokenness, Jesus declares definitively, I am risen, I am victorious. Come follow me, I call you by name. And so all the miracles put together, they're telling us what is going on. Jesus changes water to wine as if to say, you can't just be cleansed on the outside. Religious deed externally just can't clean your inside up. The healing of the official son tells us Jesus is the real king with real authority. Healing the paralytic man tells us that sometimes you can't walk and all you have to do is say, Jesus, heal me. The feeding of the 5,000 tells you this is new creation, new Passover, new exodus, and new covenant. Walking on water tells us who is the man that even nature bends before? The healing of the blind tells us that this is the coming of the kingdom and the coming of the king and raising of the dead announces to the world, death has been defeated. Where, oh where, is your sting? John tells us at the end of his gospel, now Jesus, just so you don't get confused, did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we end where we began with really, really, really good news. Good news is gospel. What is the gospel? It's simply the greatest story ever told. It is the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, how he died on your behalf to forgive you of your sins, that he conquered Satan's sin and death and now is reigning and ruling as King of kings and Lord of lords, and there will come a day where he will definitively defeat evil and judge the world. And that judgment is not scary news, it's good news. Because if you take a look around, there's sure a lot of suffering going on, and humanity's ache deep in our heart is for someone to come make it right. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on Easter, we celebrate it. If you are a Christian, 
This day is really good news. You come to it with anticipation because you know this is the day that, that holds, it gives the foundation for everything we hope and believe in. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, nothing is, doesn't make any sense. But if, if, if you're not a Christian and you're not a follower of Jesus, know that John wrote this book and he suffered to get this book to you here today. And actually all of the apostles suffered to get their writings to you here today. And they wrote in order that you might believe. So today might be the day you need to pledge allegiance to Jesus. Acknowledge him as king and lord of your life and take his grace and forgiveness. As we transition in this service, the, the worship team's gonna come back up and we are gonna celebrate. Celebrate the greatest story ever told, celebrate the greatest victory. And again, if you are a Christian, this should just come naturally to you. This is, this is what it's all about. And actually, it's what every, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. The early church called Sunday Resurrection, Resurrection Day. It's the day the Lord resurrected. So every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. But it's like once a year, it becomes extra special. So special that you gotta like do this early morning, eight o'clock service. Because 9.30 is gonna be too packed. You get to hear and have space. But use the extra space you have to actually lift up your hands and to worship Jesus the author and finisher of your faith, the one who took your place on the cross and arose in power and glory. If you do not know this Jesus today, and these songs, they may seem weird to you, you may not know why people you know, have their eyes closed and are waving and doing weird stuff, know that they've encountered a God who is alive and real, and you can pledge your allegiance to him today. You could repent and say, God, I wanna receive your, your forgiveness. And as you do that, Maybe your first act may, to, may be to join in these songs of celebration. This song is called Defender. It is about Jesus himself being the one who defends and protects and ultimately redeems us. So would you stand with us as we celebrate the risen, resurrected Jesus?